turn to the book of First Peter, chapter two. I'll be reading First Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten. Hear the inspired, perfect grammar sentences of the Lord. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you ever wake up and wonder what am I doing with my life? Who who am I supposed to be? what's What's my purpose? What we have this morning in verses 9 to 10 is the conclusion of chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. In their unit, what we're going to hear this morning, you can't hear without what we saw at the beginning. He says, believer, crave. You're not hungry? Be hungry to experience fellowship, communion with Christ to experience and taste His goodness to you through this book. In whatever forms it comes, memorization, reading, meditating, chewing on, thinking on, not merely intellect, pursue experiencing what you're so desperate for. Taste the goodness of Christ to you. And so he went on to say, that dynamic is the Christian life. He says, in doing that, God is building a temple. And he says, everyone who is part of that spiritual house will never, ever regret it. Ever be disappointed. That's essentially what we've seen now. And now this morning, in conclusion, he says, he just says, believe him. It's like he's looking us in the face and saying again, please don't get bored at what he's going to say. He says, know who you are. He says, you are these five things. And don't stop there. Don't stop at the what in life. Go on to why. Because he says, not only 
This is your identity. Who Christ, not you, who Christ made you to be. But He tells you why He made you to be that. The answer is right there at the end of verse 9. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is the purpose of your life. Let's pray. Father, may the deceptive spirit of I already know that be excluded from this assembly this morning. And may the spirit of wonder enjoy at the cross of Christ and His purposes for us be delved into in a deeper, in a greater, in a more joyful way than ever. To His glory. Amen. So, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to follow the text. Let it be the sermon. That means we're going to first look at our identity. He, he tells us who you are. You know, identity means the to be verb, I am, you are, He is. This is what He's saying. Christian, you are. That's identity. Then we're going to go on to the why, because he says, this is why you are that. And we're going to look at it. And then we're going to close with, okay, what do we do with that? So first, he says, note, verse 9, you are a chosen race. If you know your Bibles, which means if you know your Old Testament, this is where Peter's coming from. Peter is saying, this theology of chosenness that we see about the nation of Israel, he says, Christians, Gentile, and some Jews, from all ethnicities and cultures, who have come and embraced Christ, he says, you are the chosen race. It's not based on being a Jew or a Gentile. It's not based on the color of your skin if you're black or white or brown or blue or pink or your ethnicity or your culture. Then what's it based on? Because when we talk about groups and we group people in this world and we talk about race and we talk about ethnicity, that we talk about stuff that puts a particular person in, the, in that group. And he says, here's a race that you belong to. Okay, what makes me that? It's clear. Your chosenness. This race is not made up of those who have a particular color of skin. It's made up of individuals who have been chosen. Our identity, he says, is based in... This is not your action. 
This is God's action. It's based in your chosenness. Out of every race, culture, people, group, nation. We are meant to hear when he just says, right here, but, what do you mean but? He just said something before. But you're a chosen race. We're meant to hear that in the context of the sentence that just came before, that we saw the last time that we were in First Peter. Remember, he said, there are people in the world, you know, that hear the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter knows some of your family married, uh, members, you may be married to some, they may be your slave master. He says, do you realize there are people who hear this and are dead to it? Rejected in disobedience. And Peter made this stunning statement to that stumbling at the message of Christ, they were appointed. Next word. But, dear believer, do you believe? You are a chosen race. We are meant to feel God. You chose me out of darkness. You chose me away from continual stumbling on my face at the message of Christ and shine the light. That's what we're supposed to hear and to feel. Secondly, he says, you can see it in verse 10. Literally, he says, you have been mercied. In verse 10, he says, once you had not received mercy, you ever been, I've been there, but now you have received mercy. What he is saying is, God chose you while you are yet Dead to Him. You were a sinner. No inclination to believe. And then His choice of you caused Him to act upon you in mercy. See, literally in the Greek, that's exactly how He says it. The word received in the translate, you receive, oh, I did that act. It's actually not in the Greek. It's really weird the way that Peter writes it. He takes the word mercy, normally a noun, and he puts it in a verb form. So if we did it really woodenly, he says, you have been, it's passive, it's happened to you, you have been mercied by God. In other words, our identity... Who are you? Oh, I am this defined by what I do. So far, our identity in this text has nothing to do with us acting. Our identity has to do with God's acting. As as the Apostle Paul said so clearly in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 16, when he wrote, What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? By no means. Because he says to Moses, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I 
have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What's your conclusion, Paul? So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You've been chosen. You have been, verb, mercied. Why? In order that God would make you part of that special possession of His. He says the effect of your chosenness, the effect of mercy, is that you are possessed, owned by God. He's God. He's sovereign. Doesn't He own everything? He has creator rights over everything. Therefore, our minds go to work and say, hmm, He must mean a type of special being owned by God. A special possession of God. It's exactly what He means. In verse 10, He says it again, and He's doing the same thing. He's borrowing from the Old Testament. God's model of this ethnic cultural people, Israel. He did choose them. And He now takes this for believers, Jew and every other ethnicity and people on planet earth who come to Christ and He says, you are His special possession. Verse 10, He says, because remember, you were not a people but now you are God's people. Which leads him into saying, you are a holy nation. Oh, that's Israel again. But now, it's not Israel. It's the church. In one sense, it's the true Israel. He's, he's taking Exodus chapter 19. Believer! He made you a nation. It's not based on geography. I mean, Peter's. this is a general letter written originally to the entire eastern half of the Roman Empire with hundreds of different cities and ethnicities and languages and cultures. And he said, you are all one nation. And isn't that true? I mean, when I was in Dallas at a school where people literally came from all cultures and from around the planet. It is amazing, though we come from vastly different cultures, if we're born again, there is this nation, unity, that's there. Even though they don't like football. I mean, real football, Marcelo. But we have Christ. And He says you are a royal priesthood that is you're priests to royalty, to the king. You have full access to the throne of grace through Jesus. You're priest, meaning not merely in some building, in all of life. There is no neutral ground where I'm not a priest today in whatever you're doing. We're called to be worshipers of God. So what he's doing here in chapter 2, when you, when you think about it, he's saying all of these blessings in the Old Testament that were promised to the nation of Israel, he's saying, church, that's you. Not the temple in Jerusalem. 
which will be destroyed six years from the time of this writing. He says, you are the temple. The priesthood, not Aaron, not his line anymore. Women, men, young, old, are you in Christ? You are the holy priesthood. You are God's chosen people. You're His nation. That's what He says. Now, notice in verse 9. How do you know you're one of those? Because not everyone on earth, He's not saying everyone on earth, this is who you are. It's not what He's doing. He says there was a time you were not His people. But now you are. Is that you? There was time you had not been mercied, but now you have been mercied. Is that you? Well, you look at verse 9, because verse 9, he says how God brought this identity about in your life. Quote, God is the one who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's it. That's how He brings it about in our lives, in time and space. He acts. Verb. Action. Called. Out of darkness. Into light. Had you become the chosen? In this sense, to know I am that. The nation, His possession, the mercy, because God acted. You can look down the line of your timeline and say, He called me. This is so biblically central. You know, the word atonement is a really important word in the Bible. Okay, it's a theological word and it's a Bible word. The word justification, really important. Sanctification, very important term. The word called is a very important New Testament and Old Testament theological term. And it's used different ways and it's used without even using that word. Let me... Remember how Peter began the letter. He says, here I am. I'm Peter, the apostle. And then, who who are you writing to here? He could have said, to Christians. He could have used that term. He could have done like Paul does a lot. To the saints. means the holy one. It's Paul's term for believers. He could have said, to those who believe. All those would have been true. He, for his purposes, by God's Spirit, wrote it this way. To who? Who, who? who? How do you identify these people, Peter? To the chosen. The elect. Remember how he said it. And he defined it. To those who are elect or chosen according to what? God's foreknowledge. You go back on the internet and listen to take or argue. That is God's term in Scripture for His I choose my choose. But Peter goes on. You're chosen according to his foreknowledge. And then he says, 
by the sanctification of the Spirit. Meaning, the way that His chosenness works its way out in individual peoples is by the means of God, the Holy Spirit, coming and setting you apart. And if that's not clear, in verse 3, He makes it really clear. God the Father is the one who caused you to be born again. And he used the word called there. But that's what he means. That's why the Apostle Paul says, Paul, how do you understand your evangelistic mission? We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, to stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's stupid. Foolishness. But to those who are what? Called. To them, Christ. Something happens. In the preaching of the man, to them, He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Just bear with you. You can either turn there or listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to how Paul just lays this out. This is not peripheral in understanding the Gospel. Beginning chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked or lived following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember our text. He called you from where? Out of darkness. Out of this. But this is who you were, (coughs) among whom we all once lived in the passions of our sinful nature, the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were, by our very nature... Children deserving God's wrath like the rest of mankind. He called you out of darkness. Watch Paul's next word. Because Peter's next word is into his marvelous light. Paul says it this way, but God. Those are two of the greatest words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, what did that that lead Him to do? Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive. Or called us like the analogy the way Jesus called Lazarus. When He called Lazarus, it wasn't, maybe He'll come, maybe He won't. 
This call that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, the call that Peter talks about in our text, the making alive that he's saying here that his mercy leads him to do, that kind of call is not the call that I as a preacher or you as a Christian give to people in the Gospel. It's not the call of Billy Graham. We are to do that, to call indiscriminately everybody. But they don't all come. It is the call. Which brings them to life. Remember Paul, Romans 8? Sum it up, Paul. How do you understand this? And it's the gospel and it's big, large categories. Whom God foreknew, He predestined. And whom He predestined, those ones, He what? In whom He called, He justified. Therefore, that call has to be a call to faith. No one's justified by faith. In whom He justified, He glorified. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.6. Remember how God created the world? Light be. Just called into being. God, quote, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown. I mean, shined in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Peter says, this is your identity. You are the chosen the mercy, God's special possession of mercy forever. You're His holy nation. You're His priesthood. Why? This is a... It should be. Read the Bible. He says why. God did this for you so that you would feel, act, proclaim, starting now and then forever. You would feel, act, and proclaim how great God is. That's what it says. The language of the passage is really clear. He says, here's your identity. You are all this for a purpose. What is it? The purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Just a quick note, if you're looking at the King James or the New King James or the NIV, I think their English translation, it just, it's, 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 it's not necessarily wrong, it's just, I think, unfortunate because I think it blurs a little bit when they say something like, proclaim the praises of Him, because the word is not the word for praises. It's just more literally and woodenly, it means that you would, you would proclaim the great things or excellencies of Him. Well, what excellencies? 
He just laid them out. He just said He made you this so that you would say, Wow! How great He is in it. He says He calls you out of what you deserved. Wrath. Placed you in the light of Himself to see it and enjoy it. So that you would say, Isn't He beautiful? Or singing. He says, You were called out of darkness to proclaim how great God is in His sovereignty for choosing you. How great He is in His power for making you His own possession. How holy He is for setting you apart as His holy nation. How loving He is for coming to you and acting in utterly undeserved mercy. Or in short, so that you would proclaim how excellent, how great, how awesome God is in saving you. He says, church, individuals at a time, but the community of the church as a whole, but that really is meant to be understood and expressed in ten thousands of local church expressions. He says, the reason you exist as a people, the reason you know each other and have been, as 1 Corinthians says, put together in bodies to minister to one another and to be a light in the world. The reason you have your identity is for God's glory. First and foremost and ultimately, that's why we exist. That's the purpose statement of the church of Jesus Christ. That's the large one. It works itself out in, in varying different ways and ought to when we got to think about stuff like that. But you can't ever lose that. And it's lost a lot in today's American evangelicalism. We cannot take what he so clearly says in our text for granted and assume it. The purpose, the ultimate purpose for Abundant Grace Community Church or the 15 other churches up and down Narborn right here is not in order to gather more people into its flock. I did not say the church is not to evangelize and to pray for God growing His church. I said the ultimate purpose for the church's existence is not that. And we are in a crisis situation, I think, in American evangelicalism. I'm just, I want to let Pastor John Piper speak to that. 
as he writes, quote, There is a sad irony in the seeming success of many Christian churches and schools. The irony is that the more you adjust obscure biblical doctrines in order to make Christian reality more attractive to unbelievers, the less Christian reality there is when they arrive. Which means that what looks like success in the short run may in the long run prove to be a failure. If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God. You get converts to an illusion. This is not evangelism, but it's deception. There are thousands of pastors and churches today who do not think that clear, biblical, doctrinal views are vital for the life of the church or the believer. They believe it is possible to grow a healthy church while leaving the people with few and fuzzy thoughts about what God is like. But ignorance about God is never a mere vacuum. The cavity created by ignorance fills up with something else. So the question for us as individuals and as a local church is how does... What Peter is saying this morning fit into the way we wake up every day and live or think? How do we deal with you are this and then there's a purpose clause for this purpose? And the first thing, just think about that. Don't take that for granted. Just the ability to ask questions like, why do I exist? Is uniquely human. It's because only humans are created in God's image to reason, to think logically, to think about being Existence, purpose. As smart as dolphins are, they don't do it. See, dolphins, dogs, chimpanzees don't do what I did when I was five years old. It's one of my very first conscious thoughts of this. I can still see the tree in the backyard. Kids, my kids, that tree still, it's not there anymore, grandma's. But that tree was there. I'm I'm about five years old. And my grandma was 80, which seemed like 380. And it hit me. She's going to die. She's really old. And then it led me to think about my own existence. And I thought, 
Because, you know, we're going to live forever, right? Especially as kids. At five years old, it hit me. I wasn't. Because I thought, you know, my grandma was once five. And then she became ten. Okay, from five to ten, I thought, and it's a long time. Can't believe I'm going to be ten someday, way off in the future. But then she became fifteen. She became twenty. She became forty. And now she's eighty. And I realized, I'm on that same road. I, it hit me, I was just as dead as she. That, that ability. I just give my life an example because you've all done it. Oh, goodness, I hope you have. To think about, first just this, I exist. How come? How did I get here? Why do I have self-consciousness? And then to ask the questions of why or what happens at death, where I'm going, and purpose. It is only human beings who end up in psychiatric wards or become drunkards or dope addicts or blow their brains out because of such questions. And that is our text. It is saying, here is the bottom line. Can't get any deeper. Answer for your life. You exist to glorify God. That's why there's hell. Here, he's writing to Christians who have been called out of darkness into his light. And he says, You exist as a believer in order to proclaim his glories. It's another way of saying his excellence toward you. The difference between taking the purpose clause in verse 9 seriously or not is the difference between pursuing a God-centered life or pursuing a man-centered Christianity, which is a contradiction. The Bible all over and in our text specifically is really clear about who we are and why we are. And we cannot therefore speak about who we are as believers without speaking about who God is and what He has done. And not stop at the what He has made us, but go on to the why, so that He would be praised, glorified in us, through us. That's what it means to use this term, God-centered. That's what God-centeredness means. You exist at the center. And only God is the center and the purpose and the meaning of all that exists. 
When we read the Bible carefully, all over, it is a stunningly... How do you say it? It is a book that constantly tears down our man-centered philosophies of life. Just, just, just listen to this one part of a long sentence. Hear it. Hear what Paul's saying and just ask whether you believe it. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Christian, in Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the, here it is, God's purpose. The purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now watch this. Why, Paul? What's God up to? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. That's strange. He just said Christ came to die. He came, if you're a believer, and He died for you. And He brought you to Himself. And He did it for this ultimate goal. That you would praise His glory. Okay. So what about it? Practically, what does this mean for us? How do we to think about this as we wake up? As we struggle in parenting? As we struggle in being a wife or a husband or a single person? worker and a businessman. I want to start it by quoting one commentator on the book of First Peter. I want you to think about what he's saying. And I'm going to make some comments on it. Concerning this particular text in his commentary, he writes, In fact, God's purpose in redeeming us is not simply our own enjoyment, but that we might glorify Him, as Peter indicates by the words, so that, in the phrase, so that you may declare His excellencies. Seeking our own eternal well-being right though it is, could never provide a truly satisfying goal for life. The answer to our search for ultimate meaning lies in declaring the excellencies of God because He alone is infinitely worthy of glory. Now, the way he put that bugs me. 
Look, I ain't going to say who this is, but he's a great Christian brother. Not all commentators are necessarily even Christian. This one is. And, and I think he probably lives a better Christian life than I. That's not the point. The way he put that makes it sound like they're two things. It's really good that you wake up in the morning and act in such a way that you're, you're going to find real joy in Christ, but don't put that before the real goal of glorifying God. The reason it, I think it misses the point of our text, and, and so many texts in the Bible. So let us think about it a little bit. Because if you're with me right now, and you've been, you're looking at your Bible and saying, that's what this text says this morning. He made us this for this purpose. Okay. So we're, we're, we're taking the words and the meaning seriously. The question ought to arise. Hmm. Does that mean... Because God's ultimate goal is the praise of Himself. So does that mean that God is just using me as a means to, to, to His end? You, you ever been used by people? They, they ever done stuff for you, but you, did, you realized there were strings attached that you weren't so happy about, you found out later? Well, are there strings attached? Is God's mercy really mercy? Is His action toward us really for our ultimate good? Or is our ultimate good in competition with His ultimate desire to be glorified? Here's the great news of the Gospel. The great news about God's excellencies in the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that the greatest thing He can give to us is not only the command, but the ability to truly praise Him. What God without beginning and without end in Holy Trinity is absolutely content, happy, fulfilled. He cannot be happier than He is the moment. Because His full, complete contentment and happiness is in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He com- creates. Well, then why? Okay, here's, he didn't create because He had a vacuum. He didn't create because He needed to create something as a means to an end. He created for His glory. He created to overflow with His internal being and essence through the creature in order that the essence of joy and happiness and goodness that He is would be extended 
and echo back unto Him in the hearts of those made in His image. Now, if you're one of those who have been made, thus by definition finite in a creature, in His image, that would mean, if you thought about it, in all of existence, is there something out there that is the object of most pure, most holy, most beautiful, satisfying-ness? And you would say, yeah. And it beats everything else that has been created. It is the only uncreated Creator Himself. Therefore, for God, if you just look at it this way, if God were to be the most loving He could possibly be to us, but He withheld the most satisfying object of our delight, but gave us everything else, He would not be loving. That, that would be like being in an airplane with no more oxygen. And you gave somebody all the Cokes, all the candy bars and peanuts, a pillow and a blanket, but you withheld from them the thing that they desperately need, the oxygen mask. So therefore, for God to command, and then to command sinners who don't have the ability to do it, and to send His Son in order that He can justly bring us, reconcile us back to Himself, to enjoy Him forever, is at the core of the Gospel. I think in the last 50 years, in my opinion, one of the most important books written, I think too few people have ever read it, is by John Piper called God is the Gospel. And his simple way of putting this is to understand the difference. The love of God does not mean God loves you in this way. He makes much of you. He looks at you and says, look how great you are. I love you. That's not the love of God in the Gospel. The love of God in the Gospel is that God has made the way through His Son Jesus Christ to allow us to be and cause us to be now and forever making much of Him. Which is the essence of true happiness. Our identity, here's the point, in these verses, He says, this is who you are. So watch this set up. He says, you've been called out of darkness. You've been called out of eternal darkness. Of what you deserve. Into the light of His Son, Christ. So that you could see Him with the eyes of your heart. And embrace Him. And enjoy Him as the treasure that He is. He has thus made you priest in a holy nation for Him, His own possession forever. Okay, just forget about the purpose of us. is supposed to cause. Wow! If you were never told in Scripture your purpose is to proclaim how excellent He is, you would do it 
anyway. That's the gospel. See, that's why in 1981, when, when, when I was a broken, purposeless, confused, and desperate pothead and drunkard, and out of the blue, or the way Jesus put it, the wind blows where it wishes, God called me in the gospel. And I, I did not come to Christ thinking, I'm coming to Christ because, well, here's my goal. To glorify God. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't have that as a category. I came to Christ because I was lost and I knew it. I had a sin problem I wanted dealt with. I feared dying and facing a holy God. I was purposeless and my heart and soul in the gospel that Jesus would Could it be true? I came for me. I came for my sake. And God, <coughs> by that, was glorified. You can't separate them. It doesn't work. It doesn't work on two fronts. Just You can talk about you, but for me, psychologically, what am I going to do the next hour? Well, I'm going to seek my own happiness in God, or am I going to seek to glorify God? It doesn't work for me psychologically. And it doesn't work biblically. Our text this morning, it's like me saying, me gather 100 children and have them come into a room in order to eat and to enjoy ice cream. Here it is. Here's our text. So that those hundred children would proclaim what an excellent ice cream maker I am. Now if I said to the children, okay, children, wait a minute. The ultimate goal is for you to praise my ice cream making. Therefore, come on, don't put your enjoyment of the ice cream up front. That's, isn't it confusing? You can't, to the extent they don't put their joy in the ice cream is to the extent they won't truly praise the ice cream maker. The way to glorify God is by enjoying who He is. And in our text, defined by all of His actions in who He has made us to be. I'm going to read a verse. I'm closing here in three minutes. And we can read this verse two ways. So I'm going to read it both ways. In 2 Thessalonians 1.10 when he Jesus comes back on that day to be glorified in his saints self-centered you don't love us it's about you when he comes back to be glorified in his saints. That's his purpose. 
And, oh, he's not. And he comes back for what purpose? To be marveled at among all who have believed. That's what Jesus is about. Or you could read it this way. In light of our text this morning, on that day, when Jesus comes back to be glorified in His saints, and He comes back to be marveled at by all of us forever who have believed. So, don't lose the larger context now as we close. Going back to chapter 2. We've heard lots of sermons through 1 Peter in the last two weeks. The Sergio on the Word of God. What we are hearing this morning is not, okay, another disconnected sermon. It is directly connected to the way he began this section in chapter 2. And so here's the question, how are you doing? How is your hanging out with, communing with, fellowshipping with Christ, with the Father, by the Holy Spirit, over the Word? Whether you're mulling it over, meditating, thinking, reading. Peter says, not, well, if you feel like it. He says, especially when you don't, wake up. Crave. Crave like a baby is starving for mommy's milk in the middle of the night. Crave the pure spiritual food. Sustenance to your soul. The Word of God. And it is, as we're reading through, the Word, like we saw this morning, that tells us who we are. And if you're like me, you have to constantly be encouraged in it, reminded of it. It tells us this is who God is to you and has made you so that you will marvel, overflow in spontaneous praise in the midst of real life. So, to glorify God as an individual in His churches it does not mean renounce your own pursuit of real happiness. It means pursue real happiness. Pursue real joy constantly in Him alone. It says to you, all the competing desires that want to take the place of true happiness, true fulfillment, true meaning, are all idols. 
And thus, Peter says, you're desperate to crave the Word. But to the extent you haven't been in the Word, is to the extent you don't even know how hard your heart has become. I, I speak as someone who's experienced in this. If we try, just take examples. If we try to worship with our money, with our with our serving and love other people, we try to come in here on Sunday morning and, and, and just just take the the song worship part. You try to come in here, oh yeah, it's worship time, it's supposed to glorify God. If, to the extent you try to come in here and sing glorious choruses and hymns to God without having self-interest is to the extent you're not worshiping Him. That is, that your self-interest be, I need You. Want You. I've got a big hole in me right now. Help my unbelief. We worship God truly to His glory because what we worship is what you delight in, what you're excited about. And it is the Word, according to Peter. It is the Scripture that fans that aflame. 400 years ago, fellow Christians had it dead right when they penned the Catechism in wrote. The chief end, not ends, not goals, but the chief goal or end, it's only one, of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. As we're singing, the cup and bread will be passed out. Hold them. We will pray and we will partake and commune over them together. Father, will You continue to allow Your Holy Word, which came through preaching, to work by the power of Your Spirit informing us, to work in Your myriad ways, individually and corporately. Oh, and may there be Decisions and commitments made in these next ten minutes. And as we are ingesting the body of Christ and the blood of Christ to the glory of Christ. Amen.